This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Forget the Titanic, folks. If there is one boat that could properly be called the most famous boat in the world, then it is Noah's Ark. That's right. The one from biblical lore where Noah, according to the story, saved multiple animals and his family from a cataclysmic flood. For centuries, various different groups have claimed they've discovered the remnants of Noah's Ark, or they've nailed down the location of this vessel. But despite the controversy and skepticism and numerous dead ends, the search continues in the present day. And you might be surprised to learn there are more than a few Ark hunters who think there's a conspiracy afoot that the modern world, or some faction of it, knows the Ark is real but are working to hide that knowledge from the rest of the world. What are we talking about? Let's dive in. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. And I'm Ben, your you that makes this stuff they don't want you to know uh, as we get closer and closer to the end of this calendar year. We're looking back into the past way, 
way, way back into the past. I have a question uh, for you, Matt and Noel. Did you guys ever go to Sunday school growing up? I did, and Bible camp. And Bible camp. Same here. What happens at Bible camp? You just, you know, play Bible games, sing Bible songs, watch Bible programs. Did uh, did you guys ever uh, spend any time in Sunday school or Bible camp uh, looking at the story of Noah? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So it's going to be familiar to almost everybody listening. I, I would be a little surprised if this uh, was a, a spoiler for anyone, but we have learned to be careful of spoilers, right? Boy, have we. <laughs> so most people know the gist of the Noah story. There's a man named Noah who receives messages from God, and God tells him to build a massive wooden boat, which we call an ark. Uh, and this is to ensure the safety of his family and all of the animals in the world during a massive flood that sweeps across the planet. Yes, and nobody believed him that, uh, that this was going to happen when he was trying to warn people. And as he's building this thing, and he looks like a crazy person out, out in his yard somewhere building a boat. And here is a spoiler alert. Seriously, if you haven't seen the movie Noah featuring Russell Crowe playing the titular character, uh, it features giant rock monsters that uh, tell Noah what to do. They're referred to as the Watchers often, and they are worthy of a podcast all on their own. Uh, and that is a film by Aronofsky, yep. is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, taking yeah. taking a little bit of, uh, let's say, uh, license. artistic license yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the writers on that used a lot of old uh, pre-Christian Jewish sources as well, which is why uh, for many evangelical people in the crowd, it... Uh, it had some unfamiliar elements. Of course, to Noel's point, uh, I don't believe anywhere in any of the uh, holy text does uh, does it ever say that these watchers are, you know, rock monsters. But they look cool. It's like those old Ray Harryhausen uh, stop motion animations from like Sinbad and things like that. That's what it reminds me of. But anyway, mm-hmm. moving on. <laughs> uh, yes, according to the book of Genesis, God gave Noah these instructions for building the ark, but uh, didn't really do anything to back the guy up in his community. Didn't really tell anybody else. Just told the one guy, build the boat. Uh, seven days before the flood begins, God tells Noah to enter this ark with his household and, again, all the animals in the world, yes. two by two. Right? And spoiler alert, it worked, you guys. According to the story, Noah, his household, and all of the animals were spared. They, they survived uh, as the ark was afloat for 150 days before coming to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Yes, and we know some of the specifics from the story of, of you know sending out birds to mm-hmm. uh, search for dry land. The story is repeated with variations in the Quran, where the ark appears as Safina Nu. Uh, the Genesis flood story. Let's call it the flood narrative. Here's the thing about it: it is similar to many, many, many other flood myths from a variety of cultures. The earliest known written example is the Sumerian version uh, found in the Epic of Ziasudra. And people have been searching for this Ark for centuries and centuries and centuries. And, uh, you know, there have been various claims that have been made that pieces of an Ark have been found. You may have seen stories before online. Um but people have been searching this for this arc since what? 275 CE? 
Yeah, at least since the time of Eusebius uh, up to the present day. Here are the facts. We'll do some bubble busting first. There is no scientific evidence for a global flood as described uh, in in this literature. And we are not, of course, disclaimer, we are not in any way denigrating a person's religion or anybody's faith. We're we're looking at, you know, the way the story is told and what the evidence scientists can find now tells us about the veracity there. So right now, there's no scientific evidence for a global flood of this proportion. And despite many, many expeditions, no universally agreed on evidence of the Ark has been found. Uh, for well over a century, scholars have recognized that the the story here is based on these older stories, these Mesopotamian models and stuff, because uh, one thing we notice when we do any kind of comparative literature, when we start to trace the DNA, if you will, of a story, is that many, many stories are newer versions of earlier myths. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a great series of books by a fellow named Joseph Campbell uh, that you can read for more information on this. I would recommend uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces, which looks at everything from the – it sets forth the rules of stories and the way that humans write and experience stories, everything from the Epic of Gilgamesh, one of the earliest known works of literature, to, um, I don't know, Lethal Weapon. <laughs> lethal weapon. I guess it would work. Outcome. I kind of my favorite is Lethal Weapon Three. I just think you know Joe Pesci finally took on a much larger role in that particular film. I feel like it's highly underrated. Without having talked to him in my head, I can imagine Joe Pesci saying that is the role he was born to play. It's true. You know? it's true. If you've seen the Zeitgeist films, that book in particular mm -hmm. was highly influential on how they looked at uh, some of the religion aspects of Zeitgeist. So because all of these flood stories in this, in, in this zeitgeist, if you will, uh, deal with events that allegedly happened at the dawn of history, they give us the impression that the myths themselves must be very, very old. And that's kind of weird because we can sort of roughly trace back where this myth of a global flood began, and we can also find a little bit of evidence that might surprise some folks. Uh, here's Let's let the badger out of the bag. Uh, the myth of the global flood that destroys almost all life uh, begins to appear what's known as the Old Babylonian Period. That would be the 20th to 16th centuries BCE. And I know what a lot of people are thinking, you guys. Like, that's a 400-year margin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's the closest that history can get. And there are different versions of this Mesopotamian flood story. Yeah, there are nine different known versions. Uh, each is more or less adapted from the previous version. In the oldest version, the hero is King Ziasudra. And this version was inscribed about 1600 BCE in the Sumerian city of Nippur. It's known as the Sumerian flood story and probably derives from some earlier version mm -hmm. <laughs> that happened before that one. Mm -hmm. um, and the Ziasudra version tells how he builds this boat and rescues all different uh, forms of life. 
when the gods just just decide to destroy the whole thing. And it's uh, this would be multiple gods. This would be a pantheon of gods at this point. But the the basics are the same. You know, there there are other stories that descend from this. And now, in our present day and age, the most popular one or most well-known one is the story of Noah, uh, the version closest to the present-day version, the oldest version that's probably closest, is that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the character Utnapishtim, who uh, does the same thing, mm-hmm. builds a boat, saves the world. Flood myths occur in cultures across this planet, across time. We're not just talking about the Middle East. We're talking about not just Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia but India, Greece, uh, Norse mythology, the Quiche and Maya people in Mesoamerica, uh, different Native American tribes in uh, both North and South America. People have been searching for this legendary ark ever since. But here's the thing. Some people believe that they have already found it. Whoa. And we will talk about them and more when we return from a quick break. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop. Podcast producer? Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424. Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. (laughs) 
here's where it gets crazy. In 2007 and 2008, a team of evangelical Christians claimed to have discovered the remains of Noah's Ark on the peak of Mount Ararat in modern-day Armenia. And specifically, they believe they found, well, what they actually found was seven large compartments that were buried about 13,000 feet, 4,000 meters above sea level. Um, they then returned to the site with a film crew in October of 2009. Uh, the team says that radiocarbon dated wood taken from the site, whose location they're keeping under wraps for the time being, mm-hmm. show yeah that the purported arc is about 4,800 years old, which checks out, it's about right, uh, roughly the same time period as Noah's flood that's implied in the Bible. So let's do some pros and cons. Sounds good. First, the pros. It's completely possible that they found something up there. It's even possible, if not plausible, that this is some sort of ship. What? On top of a mountain? Stranger things have happened, my friend. Okay. Uh, the team themselves say that they are 99.9% sure that this is the, indeed, the remnant of the biblical ark. Uh, this, the name of the outfit that went to search for this was Noah's Ark Ministries International. It's fairly specific. And it doesn't do the best for impartiality, but it is a, um, it, it does show us that they they wanted to find this thing for sure. So I've got a quote here from uh, the filmmaker who accompanied the explorers, a fellow named uh, Young Wei Chung, who said, It's not 100% that it is Noah's Ark, but we think it is 99.9%. Oh, that is really close. Yeah, well, they get a margin of error there. Uh, so let's, let's talk about some of the cons. There, there are quite a few cons. Uh, first, the existence of an arc itself, while there are very specific measurements in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the canonical text, uh, existence of an arc doing the kind of stuff that it's described as doing is wildly implausible. So, the big sticking point for people who would interpret this literally is the idea of the animals. Human beings still have no idea exactly how many species of animals exist when you count insects, right? Uh, it's true. Multiple species of insects are dying every year before humans even know what they are. And <clears throat> there's no man-made structure capable of holding uh, uh, all the animals in one place. Yeah. Uh, if there was, you'd need more than two for a suitable breeding population for most animals, especially yeah. mammals. Even if you broke it down into this, this sounds crazy when you think about it, but I'm just thinking of earlier versions mm-hmm. of this where there's an arc that has all of the DNA stored of every, you know, living species that is known just in tubes somewhere on the ship. Uh huh. It would still be impossible. That's, you know, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that. We are kind of building arcs, our species is now, with the uh, Doomsday Vault in uh, Scandinavia that mm-hmm. holds uh, uh, holds seeds. Yes. Right? Can you guys think of any analogs in science fiction films? It feels like that is just ripe for it, like a kind of a space 
Noah's Ark, you know, going, oh, yeah, going yeah. out into the universe, trying to uh, reestablish civilization where they yeah. have like, you know, samples of all kinds of different pieces of DNA. There, there was some of that in um, Interstellar, actually. No spoilers there. Well, a little bit, but watch it. There's a, there's a whole uh-huh. thing about like kind of like starting a new civilization mm-hmm. and it has that feel of kind of like a Noah's Ark vibe, which I think is cool. That's That's a really good point because we are still – you know, we forget sometimes that mythology is not this old dead thing. Mythology is alive, and we are participating in it every time we tell a story. So, well, hence yeah. the repeated flood right. stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a narrative that makes sense in terms of fearing some sort of intense natural disaster that also has sort of like a cleansing quality, where there's always like a need for a reset. Kind of mm-hmm. society, civilization has devolved in some way, and, I, and it's a very interesting literary device. I will say. And you get a rainbow at the end, like a mint, like an Andy's mint after after dinner. On your pillow. Yeah, or on your pillow. So, yeah, there are a couple of – there are many science fiction films, actually, that do have some sort of arc-like thing because it's one of the best guesses people have about how to take the human species through space and time. Uh, You know, we can't – most of the places that we want to go, we can't – reach in one person's lifetime so we'd have to have a self-sustaining thing you know take the uh mountain to muhammad sort of idea uh one one example would be pandorum which is a film that i don't think gets enough credit which i don't the one about like space madness is there some space madness involved in that there's some space madness yeah Yeah, i'm a fan of space madness because they're out there in the in the ink for a while in deep space but uh with deep space you know, allegorically here, replacing the ocean. Uh, if we look back at the earlier search, right? The idea that the idea that yes, there was some sort of uh, large wooden boat that survived a flood. That idea is not implausible. The no. the the idea that it holds all the animals is a little bit fanciful, um, but. The other thing is that this Mount Ararat belief is very specific, and it's been a while around for a while. According to Jack Sasson, a uh, professor of Jewish and biblical studies at Vanderbilt University out in Tennessee, the whole belief in Mount Ararat as the resting place of the ark comes from a kind of loose interpretation of biblical description, because the Bible mentions a place called Aratu, an ancient kingdom in modern-day eastern Turkey, and so... People have decided or discovered or come come to the conclusion somehow that Mount Ararat is the is the resting place. It kind of made it fit the narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul Zemansky, uh, an archaeologist who specializes in the Middle East at Stony Brook University in New York, notes, uh, says something that I think a lot of people find interesting. It's a little snarky. I don't know of any expedition that ever went looking for the Ark and didn't find it. (laughs) And he adds that nobody associated that mountain with the Ark until the 10th century B.C. (laughs) Furthermore, there's no geological evidence for a mass flood in Turkey around 4,000 years ago. I don't know if that's how he sounds. I like this Paul Zemanski guy. I I hope that's how he sounds, but I don't don't think he sounds that way. Uh, Sorry, Paul. No offense. So as you can imagine, the group who claimed to discover the Ark in the early 2000s believes they were discriminated against due to their religious beliefs. 
that there is a conspiracy afoot. Well, sure. I can I can see that. If you truly believe you found the Ark. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen those Dan Brown movies and read the books. It reminds me of Indiana Jones, too. Sure. You know, I am always, uh, I'm always a sucker for an adventurous uh, archaeological exploration. And we do know that a lot of things that were believed to be mythological or fictional are proven eventually to be real things. Not all the time, but oftentimes. Uh, one great example that we are fond of bringing up on this show is the city of Troy. That's right, uh, listeners, depending on your age, um, in previous generations, very close to recent history, people thought Troy was just a, a, a pretty story for the rubes. And anyone who claimed to believe that Troy was real, was either lying to you to swindle you or was uh, dumb enough to be swindled themselves. And then, boom, turns out... Oh, wait, it's real. Yeah. Yep. Good job, human beings. We lost an entire city <laughs> for centuries, and we've, and we've done the same. Uh, we still have uh, many lost cities uh, in underwater now. Or like pyramids that are mm-hmm. essentially hidden into the structure of a mountain. Right, right. Or uh, things that have been eaten by the jungle in South America, mm-hmm. which are still possibly, which you can still find via LIDAR. But as we have mentioned in our podcast on lost civilizations, some of those governments have reasons to not show them. I'm not talking about some huge apocalyptic conspiracy. I'm saying that if the United Nations rules them as historically significant locations, then the government is on the hook for protecting them and paying for their maintenance. So unfortunately, that's that's a real thing. It's so funny because it's, it's a real conspiracy. It is. It is. But it seems so uh, not petty, just like not that big of a deal. I guess it can get quite expensive to protect a large site in that way, and it would be enough to prevent a government from wanting to have it on the books, I guess. Sure, especially if you're cash-strapped and corrupt. Mm-hmm. Cash strapped or corrupt. Those are two particular, particularly interesting flavors of government. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. So. They go great together. They do. Yeah. Peas you, and carrots. You have <laughs> examples that are not those of governments that are not either of those categories. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, 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 that's what I'm saying. It's all gradations of of cast strappedness and corrupt. Yeah, <laughs> I hear Singapore's uh, pretty uncorrupt. However, they are also very authoritarian. That's yeah. That's that's one. Of, that's another end of the continuum. There, you know. Yeah, either, yeah. <laughs> either authoritarian, corrupt, or cash strapped. It's like that old thing about um, oh, what's we repeat this a lot when we're talking about video and film off air. Uh, you can have something fast, good, or cheap. You can only have two of those yes, three. Choose. Yeah, choose because you're gonna miss one. But the idea here that there would be an archaeological conspiracy is not, from from the people who believe in it, it's not that far-fetched because we know that there has been suppression of the past before. In multiple instances, uh, dominant cultures seek to erase the uh, record or the history of the people who came before or the culture that they that had been supplanted. And this is not ancient history. This is happening now. 
around the world. Uh, places with different places are getting their names changed to match the language of the dominant culture or the would be dominant culture. Um, our own, our own country has a vast and disturbing history of seeking to eradicate, uh, native peoples, right? And so, for people who believe that there is a biblical arc, for people who literally interpret this um, as, you know, the word of God, not an allegory, uh, then it would be it would be completely within the realm of possibility for a dominant government to suppress the evidence of this. An author named Carl Bright believes the Ark is not only real, but hidden from the mainstream actively. And he wrote a book called Quest for Discovery, One Man's Epic Search for Noah's Ark. He argues that world governments are suppressing the location of the Ark because they don't want to. Um, well, here we have a quote. I firmly believe that the governments of Turkey, Russia and the United States know exactly where the Ark sits. They suppress the information, but God is in charge. The structure will be revealed in its time. We climb the mountain in search, hoping it is, in fact, God's time as we climb. Use us, O Lord, is our prayer. So, as you can see, this uh, this author also has clearly a um, an established belief system here. And it's always tricky when we explore the nature of belief being such a fundamentally subjective and private thing. So we would love to hear from you, ladies, gentlemen, others, shadows, anyone who happens to be a, a mass of spiders wearing a bag of flesh. We won't tell your secret, but we do want to know what you think about the story of Noah's Ark. It's generally considered by academia to be uh, what is called a pseudoscience, which I know is a little rough for a lot of people to hear. But we also have to acknowledge that people who are professional biblical scholars and Christians themselves often note that uh, they they believe the story of Noah's Ark functions as an allegory for, as Noel said, a, a cleansing of sorts rather than a physical flood. But, but we have more for you because we have found uh, a little bit of, uh, a little bit of forensic or archaeological or geological evidence uh, that might support a seed of truth from which the flood myth began. And we'll get to it after a word from our sponsor. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... <laughs> Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And we're back. Okay, here's the thing. So originally, when we first started exploring this idea, we thought, well, you know, nobody could build a boat now to hold a sufficient breeding population of all the animals in the world. Just we can't we we can't do it. Mm -hmm. It's not that we can't build something big enough. I'm sure if all everybody worked together, we could. We just can't get all the animals. Does it imply that there was some kind of clown car logic going on that God sort of like helped out and gave the ability to fit more stuff? It's like bigger on the inside, like the TARDIS, you know? I mean, Uh, do do you think there was maybe a little bit of a intervention, perhaps? Right, a little bit of uh, divine intervention. Because the story sure has a lot of magical thinking involved. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that, like you're saying, if we can't do this today with all the machinery and equipment we have, you know, how could it have been done without some sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. intervention from a higher power? Or is it just meant to be kind of an allegory? Right. And and there's also the question, you know, uh, what sorts of animals were around at the time? Because we will also hear other biblical scholars who say, well, there were just fewer species of animals, which believing what I do about the nature of adaptation, I find difficult. Uh, I've heard several different things yeah. in from Bible study over the years. One was that it was just animals from the immediate area and in this in this version of like an interpretation the flood itself wasn't perhaps a global flood a region that was survived mm-hmm. uh that's one one version that i've heard another one was that um it was never like the magical thinking of you know changing the interior of a mm-hmm. boat to make mm-hmm. it 
able to fit everything in. Um, the third one is more allegorical, and this is from a Bible class, and it's just a, a way to use the wisdom that's found in this story of when you see something bad happening, prepare and you know save that which is around you as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's you know this this is the thing. These different versions, these different interpretations, are all evidence of the unavoidable thing that occurs when we look in the distant past. History is a game of telephone with the actions and the beliefs of the dead. And, you know, people might dress it up uh, and, and talk about the great inspiring moments of history. And, of course, those do exist. But what I'm saying is that we tend to add to, take away from, uh, modify and recontextualize the stories of the past. And since most of the people from the past, statistically speaking, are dead or haven't contacted us, uh, there's no one to say, hey, that's not how it actually happened. There's no one around to say, well, we took the animals on the farm. We took all the animals on our farm uh, to escape a regional flood or something like that. Here's something interesting. There's a thing called the Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. So around 5600 BCE, According to this hypothesis, there was a catastrophic rise in the level of the Black Sea, and uh, waters from the Mediterranean Sea breached a sill in the Bosphorus Strait. So this was published in 1996, or the New York Times mentioned it right before it was in an academic journal. And here's here's the weird thing. People agree that the events described in this hypothesis happened. They're only debating the details. How suddenly did it happen? When exactly did it happen? How bad was the flooding? But, uh, and the, sorry, the uh, authors of this are uh, two guys named William Ryan and Walter Pittman. So before 5600, glacial meltwater had turned the Black and Caspian Seas into these huge freshwater lakes draining into the Aegean Sea. As the glaciers retreated, some of the rivers emptying into the sea uh, declined and then lower uh, decline in volume, and they ended up changing course to hit the North Sea. The levels of lakes dropped through evaporation. Overall sea level began to rise uh, due to worldwide oceanic changes. And finally, the rising Mediterranean spilled over at the Bosphorus uh, and flooded 60,000 square miles of land. And it expanded the Black Sea shoreline to the north and west. So this would, this would be the, um, for their hypothesis, they would say for at least 300 days, uh, ten, uh, 10 cubic miles of water poured through. And that's 200 times the average flow of Niagara Falls for 300 wow. days. Jeez. Yeah, the days don't match up, but obviously, Depending on how quickly this happened, it's like that old uh, that oldie song: "Nowhere to run to, <laughs> nowhere to hide." I I took out the baby, so it sounded more serious. Did that work? Yeah, no, I think it did. Especially okay. if you think about the modes of transportation that were available at the time. If this kind of water is just flooding through, I mean, That's you have an point. animal or you have land. Most or people you, are like on feet. foot. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, most people are on foot. An animal would be um, a, a significant investment there. So critics of this usually focus on how much water was going through or how rapidly it came through, right? The That's time and the degree. However, um, if this happened at a certain, you know, past a certain rapidity, then, yeah, it would seem like the world was flooding, right? Uh, this this idea remains somewhat controversial. Uh, there, there are other instances that are fl- – I almost said floated. There mm-hmm. are other instances that are proposed as the real-life origin of the global flood myth. But it's kind of weird when you think about it, isn't it, that all these cultures, many of which are unrelated – have some sort of flood myth. Like, I, I accept, of course, the idea that from Babylonian, Sum, uh, Sumerian, and Mesopotamian culture, a lot of later European or, or Christian flood myths could originate, um, and even maybe contact with India. But what about, what about people in North and South America? Why do the Kiche Maya have a flood myth? This ties into a lot of things that people argue uh, as evidence of lost civilizations like Lemuria or mm-hmm. Atlantis. They say, well, there was this great civilization, incredibly advanced. They, because of some catastrophe or angering the gods or some sort of forbidden technology, or even nuclear power, they destroyed themselves and then in, in the process founded all these other cultures after they flooded the world. Uh, that's that's something I don't know. We've we've talked about that before. This on this show we have, and I think that is one of the more fascinating things to think about. That's a great concept to imagine if you go to the Georgia Aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> I did that. I did that last time I went with my son, and I just you know that the large the hallway, the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. You oh, just yeah. walk through that, and I was just imagining being an Atlantean. Atlantan? I don't know. What, what is that? From, one from Atlantis? Atlantean? Atlantean. Sea person. I imagine being A-T-A-L-E. a sea person <laughs> <laughs> and just floating through that thing. Uh, yeah. And I imagine our culture right now and our society and what tales will be told about it mm-hmm. several thousand years from now, how this uh, kingdom existed oh, on yeah. this continent and they developed these weapons and then flooded the world. Oh, here's a here's a game. For everyone in the audience, uh, you you might enjoy this. I enjoy this. It's it's a little bit dark. Uh, next time you're around a really densely populated area in terms of structures, like you're going through a city, imagine what future historians and archaeologists will will think these things were um, thousands and thousands of years in the future. Maybe human, maybe alien. Because what always gets me when I see big uh, interstate interchanges is I can easily imagine some smug jerk, again, human or alien, thousands and thousands of years in the future going, ah, the aqueduct system was quite advanced. <laughs> with, <laughs> with the highways? For, for biological entities. Spaghetti junctions just mm-hmm. got water flowing through. Yeah, that's, that would be the idea. And then skyscrapers. How are we going to explain those? Those are kind of phallic. A little. Are these going to be, what, uh, monuments to whatever weird god they imagine we worshipped? Other excavations uh, have revealed evidence of localized flooding. So in the modern-day Telfara, Iraq, there are there's evidence of flooding. 
there's evidence of uh, localized flooding in Ur, Kish, Uruk, Lagash, Nineveh. And we see that more and more the answer to the flood myth is maybe not one single flood taking over the planet as much as it is series of catastrophic, horrific regional floods that occur in a, in, in a time when most people lived and died within, you know, easily within 20 miles of where they were born. Mm-hmm. So our, our answer here is still, is still up for debate. Is it, is it possible that someone saved all of the animals in the world in a single boat? Literally, it, it it's highly implausible. 99.9%. <laughs> right, right. But the more we learn about the history of flooding, right, and, and even controversial things like this Black Sea Deluge hypothesis, the more we have to ask ourselves – is this story is some some part of this story based in truth did someone actually survive a regional flood and by, save a whole bunch of animals by building a boat in time yeah what do you guys think i think that's highly plausible that there was a much smaller scale non-global flood threat that one person were either knew about through you know some kind of higher means yeah or maybe he just kind of had some abilities to look for those signs you know maybe right. there were some clues and the environment changing and the weather and there was and, this one guy that was like hey here's an idea let's go ahead and do a little doomsday prepping right now and build ourselves a big old boat and take all the animals we have on the farm Maybe on a large enough scale that it impressed people to such a degree that the story, like a game of telephone, gradually morphed a little bit. That boat got bigger and bigger, and it went from being just about this area to being about the entire planet. You know, I mean. Mm-hmm. But if Noah and the people on the boat and the animals on the boat were the only ones who survived in the area, who told the story? Was it Noah? Because I can imagine Noah embellishing oh, a little bit. It was Babe the pig. Oh, got it. <laughs> Who got his start on Noah's Ark before going to Hollywood. Uh, we are going to end this today. Uh, of course, uh, we want to hear from you if you have, if you have a take on the Ark, if you have a take on the evolution of mythology, or if there's stuff you heard, um, in your own research that lends uh, lends a different perspective to this. Uh, we We would love to hear about it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, but uh, before you do, if you're on the Internet, I want to leave you with uh, some interesting news. As of July 2016, if you would like to see a full-scale replica of the Ark built according to the biblical specifications, you have but to travel to Kentucky. Williamstown. Yes, where uh, a group of people have built a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark. Uh, 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, 51 feet high. Um, This is uh, part of a theme park, uh, a biblically oriented theme park. So uh, we'd love to, if you live around Kentucky, 
that want to send us some pictures, we'd also love to check those out. I want to see inside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, and there's a Christmas special going on right now. I think it's half price admission. Oh, man. All right. Well, I've got to get on the road then. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, the about some of the topics we addressed here, including historical suppression, uh, including conspiracies to keep knowledge from the masses, uh, then you can check out our website, StuffTheyDon'tWantYouToKnow.com, where we have not one, not two, not three, not 17, but every single audio podcast we have ever done in the history of this show for free. And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.